Not bad. And you? Fine. Fine. Yep. Yep. Fine. That's that's my McMurray. <laughs> you gotta clench your jaw more. I do. I do. I think you're you're in the you're using the wrong microphone setup. You sound oh. like you're you're not in the right spot. Oh dear. Yeah. You, are you in? I, a... You know, I, every every single episode, Ben, I test. Yeah, and not today. And not today. There you what go. The what the hell? Um, it, and. Uh, I, uh, while you're doing that, I'll, I'll say in the last episode, I said, uh, new year, new me, um, and, uh, let the records, <laughs> let, that? yeah, let the record show that it, uh, uh, I, at, uh, 10 two, uh, recording time, uh, or was when recording time started and, uh, we were planning to start at 10. So I kind of new year old me, how's, how's that sound? Well, here. so, so here, here's the thing, Ben, um, as uh, as uh, uh, professors, um, we are professional professors. We are not professional podcasts. If you We're listen totally to this not. podcast because you expect a professional podcast, that th- you're listening to the wrong. You're listening wrong. You're doing <laughs> you're it wrong. To it. Yeah. <laughs> there are other podcasts where there are professional podcasters. Yeah, exactly. You should listen. Should go listen to go them. Listen to that. Those that this 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 podcast is not for you. Stop no. listening right now. Yeah. Um, so I, I was I was like almost on time. I even have coffee made. I was, you as you could see, uh, I'm sure I was populating the Dropbox. I got stuff to talk about. We were, um, we reached out to a correspondent on a question that I wanted to talk about. Uh, uh, we're, there, there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot going on here today. Um, it's I mentioned in. The uh, the last episode that my building is is starting to go somewhat under construction that has started so there is a I, w- I would say it's a small chance a t- let's say ten percent chance that uh, the power to my building or the internet gets cut with uh, while we're recording oh nice uh, yeah yeah it's 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 not a it's not a lot there's there's a lot of construction that's happening they're digging things they are. Um, uh, installing what what has been uh, referred to in our building as utilities, uh, and so I see those as that could be that could be water, that could be electricity, or the most important utility to me, the internet. Um, and uh, so so who knows? But but the the road is closed. I had to take a little different route to get to my office. Um, so yeah, so I'm 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 like like I said, ten percent chance that something happens. Yeah, well, and and you know, let's hope, let's hope that the water gets cut because you could do a podcast. Oh yeah, <laughs> without without water, it's a lot harder. I would I would say nigh impossible, Ben. Uh, <laughs> uh, nigh impossible to do a podcast without uh, internet and or electricity. I, I have a backup plan, Don. I would turn my hotspot on, and I've got <laughs> I'm charging my laptop. I think we would just go, uh, we'd go old school, and I'd uh, I'd call in uh, using the the mobile hotspot. Um, from my from my awesome iPhone. That's um, good. You got a backup. I'm very impressed. You got a backup plan. I, I, I thought about things today. I I really I, I really did. Um, uh, other other things. I didn't tell you about a couple of things uh, when we talked in our first post uh, post Christmas. But I um, I got a new I got a new Series Five uh, Apple Watch. Oh, cool! And, and I love it. And mm-hmm. um, I got the you you and I talked I think offline about this. I got the cellular. Um, oh. and I'm, and I'm love I'm, I'm all cellular up. I think this is, I, I don't know how I, and I, I know you tried it for a while and then you stopped doing it. I am so into not having my phone, 
um, when I go into the, when I go into the grocery store, and I just got my 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 headphones and my and my watch, and things you know texts are coming in, and and I can check my shopping list. I'm like I'm re- really really into it. Well, so and I have to say it's. I, I, you can't really say that I tried it. What I did was I bought a a cellular uh, equipped watch. Oh, oh, I um, see. But because my my cell phone is through the university, I just couldn't face the prospect of trying to get approval. And it might have been very easy, um, but I just basically never got around to getting approval for the extra charge on my university ah, account. Gotcha. So, so I never really tried it. But I never. I also I always have my phone, Ben. I, I and, and so good for you for going phoneless. Well, I don't. So so there there are times when I don't have my phone on purpose, and that's when I'm running. Um, I I used to run with my with my phone in my pocket, and it really bothered me. And then I had mm-hmm. one of these like arm straps, and that bothered me. So I started um, downloading. Actually, this there there's a, a a very nice connection to you. I I broke my Series One Apple Watch when and, the dog pulled you over. <laughs> no, no, no. When I uh, when it fell off of a counter onto a floor, um, oh. and uh, and then you I, I, you sent me your old Series Two Apple Watch, or I, uh, yeah, which, which which is very nice of you. Yeah, well, um, I'm, I'm I'm happy to have helped. Yeah, well, you did because what it what it did was uh, with that Series Two, I could get. Um, podcasts onto my like the Apple Podcast app worked with it, and then Overcast worked with it. And anyway, this was a couple of years ago. So I like to run while I, well, I like to listen to podcasts while I run, and so I started putting podcasts on my on my phone. And I guess maybe the other thing that the Series Two did that the Series One didn't, and the Apple users will will really get upset at me if I get this wrong. But I, I think I don't think I could use my wireless headphones with Series One, maybe. Um, or maybe, maybe I could, I don't know. Um, anyway, whatever it was, the series two got me to a spot for like three years where I was downloading, um, uh, uh, podcast episodes and then just running with just my, my headphones. And I like, and I like that. Um, and then it, it just got clunky and, and so, but, but I'll, I run, I run maybe, um, say like three times a week on average for about 45 minutes. And I like, you know, I, I don't want to take my phone with me. So my, my phone stays in my car and I, I run around this, um, this trail around a lake that's, that's here in, in Raleigh. And for OPSEC reasons, there's you pick a lake, there's like 90 of them. So try and find me people. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's not a dare folks. That's not, it's not a challenge. <laughs> it's not a challenge. Please don't try to find him. That's creepy. So, yeah. Don't try to find me. Um, <laughs> But I, uh, so, so I do that. And, and then when I walked the dog, I, I got, you know, I started also doing the same thing. So I just, I I would take, wouldn't take my, um, wouldn't take my phone. Um, but there are times when I wanted to still be in contact because of the kids. So I might leave them at home while I go for a walk and then I'm in the, in the neighborhood. Now they can, they can call me and text me. Um, and so it's very, it's very freeing. Um, and so I've been, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'm into it. And there, there are many times, and this is, this is the Apple thing. You know, someone, someone wrote about this, uh, or said it on a podcast and one super, super smart said that Apple makes things that, that you don't even know you need. And you, you look at it and think, Oh, I'll never use that. Cause I'm always going to have my phone. And then I tried it and I was like, Oh, this is, this is phenomenal. There are lots of times when I don't need to have my phone. And it can be somewhere else, and I don't feel um, I, I feel in in a weird way 
untethered by being more tethered. Right? Like I'm I'm now no longer attached to my phone because if someone needs to get hold of me, they can get me on my watch. And I Right, you've you've got you've got two eels, but but it's a more comfortable eel. It is. It's yeah, and, and I can and, and but I don't I, I don't find myself looking at it. This you, John Roderick talked about this on Roderick on the line because I think he went um, in a similar situation, I am I am actively trying, and Screen Time has helped with this. Screen Time is telling me how many times I'm picking my phone up, and and I do waste a lot of time just like looking for the next like what's new, right? Like, and and my my cycle is I spend a lot of time on email, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Um, I, and I spend a less time, but still probably too much time on Facebook and Instagram, which are not giving me anything. Um, like uh, other than like connecting me with people. Uh, and so, so I, um, I, I really, I don't know if you've noticed it, but I don't spend, I don't look at Facebook very much in, in, uh, in a, in a, my, my sweet spot of, of working hours, which are, uh, uh, pretty much just banker's hours. I'm really good from about 10 until two. Um, and I don't, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time on, on Facebook in those hours for uh, any, for any university administrators that are listening, Ben works way more than 10 to two every day. <laughs> I, I do, but I'm better in those hours. The, oh, right. Well, yeah. there's time for good work, high productivity work, and there's time for, you know, busy work, right? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and those are my, those are my like, okay, I've gotten into my day. I can, and we've we've talked a little bit about this a long, long time ago about getting into sort of a, a groove where you you get so engrossed into what you're doing, you kind of lose track of what you're listening to. I, I do that with with podcasts and music, and and I also do that with um, I kind of lose track of time. I lose track of what's going on, and I, I'm finding more and more that is happening in that in that middle of the day time. Like I, it, it takes me some time to get started and, and I, it, I, um, even, and I, you, I don't know if you, if you also feel like experience this, I even find early. So I, you know, we, I got like lots of busy work at home on in, in the morning, trying to get kids ready for school and getting lunches ready and, and getting out the door and, and going through like emails that might've come in overnight and what's happening in, in the morning. I can't get into like a real thinking groove. And it takes me a while to to even like get ready to get ready to work. Like like I'm not even in a mind frame. Like I just want to go back to bed. I just I want it like to to continue. Like okay, I I will. Things are are not. I'm not super motivated yet. So let me let you know. Let me continue to try things. Like let me let me open Twitter and do a a search for food safety and see if there's something there that can get that can start to turn my mind on. Or and and I'm finding more and more that it's important that I. Um, that I'm consuming some sort of caffeine to 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 turn my motivation to like, okay, I'm ready to to start thinking and and be productive. And I and so, I so just opening up your email and looking at all the things that you promised to send to people that's not motivating. Right, enough. right. That's exactly <laughs> that's the opposite. And and it's and this is I mean we'll get into my full neuroses here. It's so <laughs> it, we're we're now in uh, neuroses safety talk. Um, it's so it's so bad that I need something easy. I need a I need an easy win. Like I I gotta scan through my my emails and find a question that I can answer without any like 
any real time, and, and time's not actually the issue, without any sort of digging, something that I already have an answer to, and I got to get that one done and then get some confidence to go do the harder things that I've already promised people. Like, is, is, I don't know if that, if oh. that makes sense. Oh, we've have some, we have something in follow-up that was exactly that for me. Right. Oh. It was, it was a question about cheese. Um, and, uh, I'm like, you know, I, I really should take care of this. It's not that hard. Let me, and I don't know how to solve it, but I have an idea how to start solving it. So let me, let me go and do that. So, it, but yeah, okay. it takes a while to get started and, and and get confidence that I can still like do these things every day. Yeah. Yeah. And, and believe me, we are not alone in this. One of the things that I, I sent to you and to uh, my other two uh, writing buddies oh, yeah. is an article uh, appearing on the uh, dynamic ecology uh, WordPress site, uh, which is entitled, how much evidence is there that we should aim to write every day? And are there downsides to suggesting that people aim for that? And, and in fact, um, uh, it's really it's an interesting article, and then the comments have been really interesting as well. And and what I've concluded from that is that uh, you know, and this will this will surprise you a little bit, Ben, is that and not everybody is the same. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, there's like different people um, have different <laughs> ways of being productive, and that's okay, right? Like for some people, it works to write every day. For other people, it doesn't. And again, and I've shared before with with on writing buddies, and I posted a a, a post on this on this uh, blog post or a comment on this blog post is that. One of the things that I discovered through analyzing my writing data is that I write more when I write more. That is, when I yeah. sit down to write more. The more the more times I sit down and say I'm going to work on a manuscript now, right? And and when I say write, I'm I'm I'm, I'm expressing that broadly, right? It could be writing original text, which is the most hard. It could be editing a graduate student's work. It could be um, doing data analysis. It could be uh, formatting references, you know, so I can I can keep my case of beer. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that every time I edit references. Uh, I'm glad you know, to share that. Win, that. win that case of beer from Gord Downey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's perfect. It's Gord Sergeant, but even better than it was Gord Downey. Oh, Gord, Gord Downey's a hockey player, right? Yeah, well, he's the guy who sang about hockey a lot. Oh, okay. All yeah, right. he's the... Well, the oh, he's from... Uh, he's the, the 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 guy that died from the famous Canadian band. Yeah, yeah, the tra the tragically hipsters. <laughs> uh, I'm 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 I am I, I am I am seventy five percent there, Ben. I'm sixty five percent. That was amazing. There was a whole bunch. There was a whole bunch there that that just ex that exploded. <laughs> See, it's all in my head, Ben. It's just not connected right. <laughs> oh, I the, yeah. So um, we'll link to uh, we'll link to this great blog post by uh, Megan Megan Duffy. How did you come across this? I think I came across it on Twitter. You know, Twitter is a is a hellscape, right? And I alternate, <laughs> I alternate between reading political Twitter and getting depressed. And I've got enough. And of course, I don't segregate my Twitter. It's all just one giant fire hose full of weird stuff. Um, you know, including um, uh, one account that that you know accounts that tweet out uh, from Mark Twain and Kurt Vonnegut and pictures of houses and um, different colors <laughs> from the color map. Um, and then and scientific Twitter and I. And this this came to me from scientific Twitter, and I, I just and it, it drew me in, and I really I, I you know because any, anytime you can you know procrastinate writing by reading about writing, I'm there. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so there's a guy that that made me think of a, a tweet that I saw earlier this week about writing a book that seemed okay, like seemed reasonable. There's a guy that I follow um, named Chris Jones. He's at Enswell Jones on. Um, uh, on, on Twitter, uh, not at like end as well. Like it's E N 
Enswell Jones, and I don't know what what the history of that is, um, but he tweet he's there, I have a, like an odd connection to this guy. So he used to write for ESPN the magazine um, as their like back page, um, you know one one page like um, the. Um, What's the uh, MC Hammer uh, things that make you go? Hmm? No, it's a CNC Music Factory things that make you go hmm, uh, type type uh, articles that I really liked. And turns out this guy now lives, and I don't know his history, but he now lives in the small town that I grew up in, Port Hope, Ontario. And I know Opsak is actually is right in his Twitter bio um, on that. But he he now like he's written for Esquire, is according to his Twitter bio. He says now mostly you know, writer formerly of Esquire, now mostly for screens, including Away, an upcoming Netflix original series, trying to make more corrections than mistakes. Um, and yeah, so he's in in Port Hope, and he. Um, he wrote. I'm, I'm assuming he wrote a book because he said, "Oh, I gotta find this this tweet." Um, it, it basically said, um, "Writing writing a book's not that hard if you just think of it this way: write four days a week and um, 500 words a day, right?" So that that seems like a, a small little you know little time um, to or a small amount, and then uh, spend the fifth day editing that, and you do that for a year, you've got a book. Um, yeah, I got to find the actual, like, uh, the, the actual tweet anyway, but, but it's still, here it is. Uh, oh, and in fact, you know what, here's the thing. It's not even his tweet. He retweeted someone named mm-hmm. Glenn Stout. Um, find what works for you and don't, uh, uh I don't know. No, maybe he retweeted it. Of course, this is amazing. Oh, no, it is, it's his tweet. It's nearly New Year's. We're on to write a book. We'll link to this. 500 words a day, four days a week. One day for editing those 2,000 words. Keep your weekends for rest and reflection. 50 weeks later, 100,000 words. By the end of 2020, what you see here, joy, pride, and relief. And and so he a manuscript of, of his book. Um, it's like – so that – it's like so many things that you're, that you're trying to do in life, like be better at your, at your job. For me, it's like be more engaged in food safety things and all, you know, whatever it is. Um, it, it is, it, I think when you set, when you set a goal as opposed to a limit, like what we do with, with, um, with word buddies, word buddies, uh, with, uh, writing buddies has really, <laughs> sometimes it's just word buddies. Sometimes you know, it's, it's like small. It's just, it's just, 500, it's just 500 words. Um, but so in that process is every, every two weeks, we kind of look at what we're going to do and say, okay, here's my goal. Not, not this. And this is, I guess this is a goal, but I could see getting very overwhelmed if I got to February and I had only written like 1600 words. Now I've got a whole bunch to, to catch up, catch up on. It's a really, it's a, it's, and like, like the article that, um, that you sent from, from Megan Duffy there, there's so many different ways to do this. And, and I think the hardest thing is like for me, feeling bad when I don't achieve whatever the goal was and then that just like compounding and then, and then just getting paralyzed by it. And, and what I've, what I've found that, that works, I guess it works as much as, as it has for me, um, which, you know, of varying degrees over the last, I don't know, 15 years or so that I've been trying to do this is I always have to, I got to switch it up too. Like I'm what works for me today might not work for me tomorrow, or I might work for three weeks and then I got to do something else. And, um, and maybe I'll try and go back to it. Like there's just even variability within me. Um, but anyway, this didn't seem like 500 words a day, four days a week doesn't seem like a really daunting task. And then 
I, I, I sat down and, and tried to write 500 words yesterday and I was like, oh, I just can't do it today. And I, I edited uh, a couple of abstracts and I, I looked at a manuscript and those, it's still, it's still writing, but it, creating 500 words a day was, is really hard to me. Like, it, it, cause I'm not a professional writer, but it's still, it's a lot, right? Yeah. And, and I think the main thing is, again, as I said before, you should find what works for you. And, 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 you know, and we have, we're not, I mean, we, we write for our, what we, our work, but it's for we also work. do a podcast and we also teach and we, we uh, answer questions from the general public, right? That, cause that's part of our job as extension specialists, right? It's not, it's not that we um, get to only just write, right? Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I'll just, you know, as we circle this, um, I'll, I'll read from that um, Megan Duffy uh, 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 blog post. Uh, she says, uh, Sword Central Message is referring to a, um, a, a book by Helen Sword. Sword Central Message in Air and Light and Time and Space is that there is no one way to be a productive writer. There are a few general practices that are worth focusing on, but the you must write every day advice just doesn't work for everyone and leads to a lot of people feeling guilty. <laughs> yes, it can it can happen. Um, so anyway, thanks for uh, for sharing that with me. Um, and and I'll, you know, it, it, and just I mean, talking through this, it's always it, it's always a little bit. Um, I it, the the other thing the other thing about what I love about this podcast and just talking to to you in general and to other mentors I have is that you sometimes get even in your own head, like no one else is dealing with this and turns out everybody else is trying to deal with the same thing, right? Like you yep. don't want, you don't want to feel like, Oh my gosh, if I go to somebody and try to figure out how to get better at this, then they're going to look at me like I'm stupid. And I, I you, so you got to kind of just suspend that and think, you know, a lot, lots of people are dealing with lots of things and, and in the academic world, struggling to be productive and, and be, um, a, write more is, is something that, that no one, I, you know, no, no one's really got figured out. Um, and even the people that are really good at it, uh, I think are, are at least I, I have to remind myself that, that they also are struggling to do it uh, as well as they're doing it. Well, or, or they're, or they're jerks and you don't want to know them. Yeah. Screw that. <laughs> good point. Good point. This is true. This is true. Um, Hey, just, I want to close a loop on something. Um, you mentioned that the Apple watch was your solution, um, to, uh, because you didn't like your phone with you while you were running. Yes. Um, I have a different solution to that. No running. My solution is no running. No running. Don't run. (laughs) And again, it it works differently for different people. Well, and, and, you know, I'm standing, I'm standing, I'm literally standing here on my treadmill desk. I'm not, I'm not walking on my treadmill desk, but I was walking before and I will walk again today on the desk. (laughs) And uh, yeah, that's my, that's my way to get uh, exercise. And and it really, um, yeah, it's really just part of my workflow. I never thought it would be such an interesting and cool and easy to do part of my workflow. Um, But it is. Oh, it's good. Um, I still have not um, subscribed to the to the desk. I, I might have mentioned a while ago, and here in my building we have a treadmill desk, and it's in like a common sort of common area. It's it's kind of tucked away um, behind some some things. Uh, and actually, I don't even know if it's still there. That's how how little I've been in that that area. But it was a place where I think early on some folks started to use it, but it, it would just seem weird in like. Trying to use a common area as opposed to in your own area makes it makes it hard, right? Like you don't know if you're... oh, oh, absolutely, yeah, no, believe me, there's no one at this. I mean, occasionally there's a dog laying on the treadmill, <laughs> uh, but they won't walk on it while it's uh, while it's moving, and so uh, yeah, so no, this is this is my I, and it's always it's always there if I want it. Yep, yep, yep. Cool, cool. 
Oh, um, so it's just again to, and to close the loop on something else that I had forgotten, I needed to close the loop on. Um, um, th- why are there so many people named Gord or Gordy in Canada? Because I was conflating uh, uh, Gord Downey with Gord Sergeant and also Gordy Howe. Right, right. There's everybody's name. And, <laughs> um, and and can I add a third, a fourth to that? There's a sure. a, a wonderful ska song by the Planet Smashers <laughs> called Uncle Gordy. Um, and Uncle Gordy is a guy that uh, skips work to play uh, play hockey with the kids, um, and, uh, and yeah. So I so there are there are a few very Canadian names. Gord is one of them. Uh, so my um, uh, my my wife's grandfather, his name is Gord. Uh, and, and there's not, it's not even like a handful of gourds. Like I think for my, my entire life, there's about 30 or 40 gourds who I, who I have engaged with at some point in, in my Canadian time. Uh, I've never met a gourd in North Carolina. Not, not one. Hmm. Um, and then there's I never, and, never met a gourd. I didn't like never met a gourd. I didn't like, uh, but gourd, um, Doug is another like really Canadian name. Like there's not a lot of Dugs in um in the U.S. Huh? Do you know any Lorns, Don? Uh, Lorne Michaels. Lorne he's Michaels. Canadian, he's right? Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> I think you just proved my point. There's uh there there are very uh Lorne Green. You know you know him? Oh yeah, from uh, Bonanza. Is that right? I no. Think so. uh, Battlestar Galactica. Oh Bonanza. Yes. Uh, guess where he's from? Canada. Ottawa. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so Lor- yeah, Lauren's like a really, uh, Canadian name as well. And then the, the last one, um, and I, there's, there's a, one, one of these has appeared in my life recently. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he's a parent of a, of, a uh, one of the hockey uh, players that I coach, uh, is a, is a guy, Canadian named, uh, Robin. So we got, you got Robin thick as, uh, as, as one, but, uh, so, so I could put Lauren's gourds, Robins and Doug's. <laughs> I think we just <laughs> found a show title, uh, and and that is like if you if I came across any of those, the, I I think there's a pretty good chance that, that that's a Canadian person because it just like, it, yeah I, I don't Doug, know why Doug, Doug is pretty common in the U.S. but but none of those others it's I mean it's more common in in the U.S. yeah, yeah the others for sure not but I think there are more Dugs in Canada like, oh per like, capita yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> per capita Dugs oh man. Uh, and, and so, and this is like, I, I don't even know why, like how that even happens. There's gotta be, someone's written a, uh, a PhD thesis on this in, in, uh, name etymology somewhere. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So Gord, I can see why you can get confused by all the Gords. <laughs> Glad we got that sorted out. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so we got some, you want, you want to talk uh, cheese feedback? You want to, what do you want to, what do you want to talk about? There's there's some stuff um, we 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 just recorded a podcast we like plowed through m- almost all of our feedback. There's only a couple of things. Yeah, I was worried that we weren't going to have enough to to talk about. Oh, dude, I got stuff. <clears throat> but but I think we'll get stuff. So yeah, so let's um let me let me let's talk about cheese. So let's talk <laughs> let's talk about cheese. <laughs> let's. Let me let me uh, let me talk about cheese here, Ben. In uh, in just a minute, um, is, is this as, the I, che- as I start to talk about cheese? Is this the uh, cheese? Is this a, a question that we both received like last night uh, about cheese that oh, came from a Doug? No, this is a different. This is a different question. Um, so this is uh, this is in the um, uh, thing, um, the Dropbox. Yeah. Okay. 
in a in a uh, a thing entitled a thing, an email. I'm so eloquent this morning. Uh, in an email or in a in a file entitled "Possible Deep Deep Dive on Date Marking." Oh, okay. Yep. So this is yep. this is a question that came to me um, from uh, a. Uh, a public health person in the state of New Jersey. And I won't identify the person. I won't identify the store. Um, and this is somebody that I've corresponded with before uh, and, you know, helped to sort of steer them through the regulatory complexities of, of modern food safety. So uh, so the, uh, I'll read from the email. It says, hi, Don, I have another question from you based on the email below from um, Company X food safety person about FDA's date marking exemption list. Trying to enforce date marking and using the exemption list, it's as clear as mud. So yes. However, I have never come across the yellow area that I highlighted in the email below um, talking about um, uh, synonym names for different types of, of cheese. Now, the, the, the color highlighting did not show up in the email, but um, I can figure, in yeah. the safe, but, but you can figure it out. So, figure, yeah. so here's, here's, the, here's the, the question. So uh, and now I'll read, from, I'll read from the person in the store, okay? Uh, 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 during a recent visit, you discussed date marking cheeses and salami in our deli case with a member of management. I wanted to read and this is somebody from corporate, right? This is not somebody from the store. I wanted to reach out in order to better assist in understanding uh, the processes utilized by company X. Um, we sell cheese in the deli uh, case. Um, the cheeses we sell in the deli case meet the exemption found in the FDA food code, and we'll, we'll get into linking to that part of the code. Um, I've attached a list of cheeses exempt from date marking, um, uh, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, okay, but a few things to note. American cheese is another name for cheddar. Pepper Jack is another name for Monterey, and Swiss cheese is another name for Emmentaler. And so, the, and what this person was confused with is, is, is that the synonyms? And and gotcha. if you've ever done any uh, reading about cheese or or cheese and the food code, you know, cheeses are really complicated, right? They're they're diverse. They occur, you know, they've been developed around the world. They all have some similar characteristics. They also are all potentially very different. Ultimately, really, it's all about pH and water activity. It's about pasteurization of the milk to begin with. Uh, but really, it comes down to, to pH and water activity, and honestly, mostly water activity, right? Which is which is not uh, ever, ever really necessarily explicitly mentioned. Most of the cheeses are, are designated based on moisture content rather than water activity, but they correlate, right? Um, and so, um, so, the, so the, the short answer is that the person from the corporate food safety office is essentially correct in their statement. Um, and so we'll link to um, uh, the, the food code, and, and, in the, in, and it's not the food code, it's the food code annex. And, and Ben, you pointed out to me before, the trick to finding the annex is to open the current copy of the food code, which is a PDF um, on the web, and then scroll all the, all way, the way down to the bottom. Okay, and and you'll see on uh, on the in the food code annex um, referring to the section of the code that relates to date date marking, which is five dash or sorry three dash five zero one point one eight. And if you go to page 300 of the current food code, that's where the annex is. Okay, and there is a citation there. 
to the Code of Federal Regulations, Title 21, Part 133, Cheeses and Related Cheese Products. And if you look at that, this is a part of the regulations that doesn't have anything to do necessarily with food safety, but it has to do with essentially standard, standard identities or standardized cheeses, specifications for standardized cheeses and related products, okay? And you can go to that part of the 21 CFR Part 133, and you can see essentially there's a section. Uh, it's it's point in case you're taking notes. Point uh, sorry one one three three point one nine five, which basically says Swiss and Emmentaler cheese. One three three point one five three, Monterey cheese and Monterey Jack cheese. Now now that's not what was in the email message. What was in the email message was Pepper Jack is another name for Monterey, and it's it's true. Pepper Jack is short for um, 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 Monterey. Jack pepper Monterey Jack or something right so there's a little bit of confusion there but it still kind of kind of makes sense right and then and then it's a little bit more complicated with American cheese right because there there is um, uh, there's a uh, text again in another section of, of uh, 21 CFR 133 cold pack and club cheese which states in part if the cold pack cheese is made of cheddar cheese washed cheese curd Colby cheese or granular cheese or any mixture of two or more of these, it may be designated cold pack American cheese. Or when cheddar cheese, wash curd cheese, Colby cheese, granular cheese. Oh, my God. This is just written it's by great. a lawyer. Yeah. Or any mixture, blah, 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 with other varieties of cheese in the cheese in the cheese ingredient, any of such cheeses or mixtures may be designated American cheese. And so basically what that's saying is that if you make uh, uh, cheddar cheese into basically processed cheese, that you can call that American cheese. So, so that was a very, very long way for me to basically say to this uh, local regulatory official um, that, um, in fact, uh, this is uh, th that what the, what this corporate person, corporate food safety person, is saying is correct. Yeah. So, Anyway, that's what I have to say about cheeses today, Ben. Yeah, no, though I got more to say about cheeses. Oh, go for it. Yeah, so, um, so we, so this, it's funny we we have like a a, a a a triad of cheese questions that that all kind of relate to this this same issue in this three five oh one dot one seven ready to eat time temperature control for safety date marking exemptions for cheeses. So I right right before the holidays, I received a question from an extension agent. Um, here in, in North Carolina, um, and and she she wrote, I have a, a client who regularly purchases hoop cheese. Do you know about hoop cheese? You heard you seen hoop cheese, Don? I don't think so. Well, okay, so and I'll tell I'm gonna, me about hoop cheese. I'll tell you about hoop cheese in a second. Here's the the question is, it, it is usually sold at room temperature. She wants to know the reason for it being at room temperature versus ah. other cheeses that are stored under refrigeration. Um, and uh, the the agent who is who is extremely uh, it, she's she's a great agent and and very very cool. She says I think I should know this answer, but I'm not absolutely <laughs> sure. Could someone give me an explanation? I can't seem to find a resource with with information I'm looking for. Uh, from a food safety perspective, why can they sell hoop cheese not refrigerated? And hoop cheese is 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 really uh, a cheddar cheese um, it, that that's like kind of a traditional um, southern cheddar cheddar cheese, a hard. Um, like orange cheddar cheddar cheese, and it's usually sold at restaurants. Um, and I didn't know anything about uh, hoop cheese in, until we moved here. But I, I, where I've seen it is um, outside of if it's like a southern food restaurant or anywhere that's like a, a barbecue place um, or like a cafeteria style restaurant outside of Raleigh. 
um, there's usually a basket of of hoop cheese at the at the cash register that's like wrapped up in um, in, in like um, plastic wrap, like like not 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 uh, vacuum um, packaged, and it's some like really like old type of. Um, uh, traditional cheese, and, and Wikipedia says it's a simple yep. traditional cheese made only from milk, where the whey has been totally pressed out. It's different from farmer cheese, and it's made with milk, cream, and salt. Uh, hoop, hoop cheese is made from milk alone. Um, and anyway, the um, the reason, and and I've uh, we'll link to this in in show notes, and I've put a paper that that I I continuously go back to. Um, because FDA talks about it, it's, it's this, uh, paid or this, uh, paper from 2006 in food protection trends entitled storage temperatures Nece- necessary to maintain cheese safety. Um, and so that paper was, uh, written by, uh, J Russell Bishop and Marianne, uh, Smikowski at university of Wisconsin. And I don't know, do you know either of them? I know that I know that, uh, J Russell Bishop goes by rusty Bishop and I met, I have probably met him <clears throat> At IAFP, um, he uh, may be uh, since retired. I know, obviously, he's at University of Wisconsin uh, Madison, so he's good friends with um, Kathy Glass, who I know quite well. So, and I'm wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, we, we I don't, I don't wanna. <laughs> he might be passed away. I'm oh, not sure. I, ho- I sure hope not. I so the, the I, if if so if so this will be a really good tribute because I saw him. <laughs> Talk about this paper at a uh, at a, a, a it was a food safety meeting and I can't actually remember where it was but I wanted I want to like uh, I remember it that he came and talked in Ontario at the Ontario Food Protection Association it might have been somewhere else but I remember as a graduate student seeing him talk about this paper and it was either right before it was being published or right afterwards and this this paper was part of like my. I, I don't know, inspiration of like going into extension because the way that he, that he talked about this was, Hey, we had a very um, specific policy question uh, about like how, how FDA handles these, these types of cheeses. And we work on behalf of the dairy industry to, to generate science to, to show whether it's safe or not. And, and it was, it's just such a well laid out paper um, that goes through like that. I go back to almost every time I have a, 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 a cheese question to find out. All right, what what do we know about these cheeses? What are the um, what's the typical water activity? What are the pHs? What do we know about like um, it, a, a re, there's a really nice table in here called Table Three Summary of Data on Cheese Reviewed and, and Compositional Calculations that go that uh, summarizes a whole bunch of different cheeses and say uh, says all right these ones low risk for contamination is time going to matter is temperature going to matter no um and and here's why and and i i use it all the time and i and i think it's where that 3501 um uh dot 17 exemptions come from uh as well is is the work that uh that was presented uh in here in that in that summary in 2006 so it's um so anyway uh you know, to to sort of circle back on on the question that I got, um, it, you know, hoop cheese is is very similar to a cheddar, has very similar um, attributes, and so even um, even if you look at the at the literature, um, there and in, in, again, Rusty uh, uh, references this in in that in that table. Um, there are like not only doesn't 
doesn't it support the growth of Listeria or Salmonella or Staph uh, aureus? It actually results in pathogen kill. Um, and, and so that's, that's good too at elevated storage temperatures. So it, it kind of really makes the case that although we might look at this food as being something that is in, you know, the pH is, um, water activity is 0.95 and the pH is 5.2. Uh, we really have lots of data showing that, that as a, um, historically, it's not something that, uh, that should be considered to be a, a TCS food. Um, and so that, you know, that, that's what I sent on to this, to this extension agent who was looking for this information. I know that this is what our regulators, um, look at when they're evaluating these, these things. And it's, and it's a really, I mean, it's just a great paper. Yeah, and and apparently um, um, uh, Rusty is retired, uh, but but still alive as far as I can tell. We're happy Apologies, about that. apologies yeah. to any. And I, at this point, uh, all of the people in Kathy's lab that listen, um, uh, shout out to Kathy's lab, are are like uh, screaming at the at the the, yeah. the podcast player, saying no, of course not. Um, uh, yeah, so he retired from uh, University of Wisconsin in 2010 and went on to serve as the director of research and development at Schreiber Foods in Green Bay. So. Oh, cool. Um, so as far as we know, uh, still alive um, and published a great paper, uh, at least one great paper uh, that Ben refers to often. So yep, and 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 just like gave a really good talk that that I I still think about like aspiring to when people who are not in extension like as if there's a student who sees who sees me talk I'm like I kind of want to make them like this world of trying to solve these questions and answer these policy questions and and it was it really like I've never I've never met them I you know I I've never I don't think I've ever told that story uh but man it was um I I I do remember sitting in the room thinking I'd love to do that. There's got to be all like, uh, there's got to be a thousand questions that that could be answered in a, in a really similar way. And and you know, we we talked in the last episode about the um, the importance of conference for food protection for for us and and being able to change policy that that has real practical applications of what people do every day. This was one of those things where it's like you know, there's a lot of food that. Um, that that some re- some regulators may be questioning and maybe throwing out and and here let's lay it out in a in a very easy way and get it to people's hands. So yeah, so thanks thanks to Rusty um, and, and we're very happy that it's not it's not posthumously. <laughs> um, oh, so so there was another like there was another cheese question that we got yesterday. Mm-hmm. That I haven't answered, that I haven't really read. Do you know? Did you see this cheese question? I, I did. This is this is a cheese question that came our way from one of those famous uh, Canadian Dugs. It, it is. So, um, so so anyway, I'm gonna let, let's do this. Let's do this on the fly, kind of like a live okay. show. Um, yep. So uh, I'll paraphrase this a little bit, uh, or actually, I'm gonna read directly from the email, but we'll not say this is from uh, uh, Deep Chan- Kansas Cheese. Uh, you may or may not remember me. My name is uh, Deep Kansas Cheese. And uh, you know my daughter. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm also the first and continuous official cheese steward in uh, this place in, in Kansas, operating out of a, uh, a grocery store. In the past, I've had some concerns and have appreciated your sage advice. You also presented me with some valuable industry information I was able to pass along to the consumer. Now, after 11 years in this business, I'm requesting some direction from you again. Bottom line, a certain company from a state went bankrupt, and this grocery store came in and bought them. Uh, since then, they've executed these OOR, uh, which stands for Out of Refrigeration Displays, because they think they are pretty and will sell product. All in caps, problem with an exclamation mark. And here you must bear with me. 
Every three-month period, we must reset an out-of-temperature table display with whole wheels and cut pieces of cheese, which they, quote, say are ambient temperature. I agree some are, according to a 2011 FDA document list, which has never been updated. I disagree with a number of the products they mandate for, my, for display. My reason is because I have no way to back up the documentation. And my number two reason is the manner that they want us to handle and execute the display. Um, Every three months, we are to change the display with a whole wheel, for example, a Gouda or Cheddar. We are to have cut pieces also, but we are to have them displayed at room temperature, never the same, uh, and never the same humidity for 8 to 10 hours, and then haul them back to 30 degrees overnight in the cooler, then return for a display for another 8 to 10 hours, and over and over again for three months. I know cheese is sustainable, but to what degree? Uh, I have this whole uncut 80-pound wheels of parm on display with cut pieces surrounding them, sweating, pouring out butterfat all over the place, and growing mold within a week. Labeling is destroyed. I know it is not going to be the same product I could offer in refrigeration. Today, I cracked an 80-pound wheel dated April 2017 with a huge crack across the bottom center uh, with fissures, empty pockets, and rind as brittle as shale rock. Fit for pigs, but hardly for the consumer. Uh, I, I think I know what condition my product should be for the consumer, but I can't get anyone um, in, in my corporate uh, arena to listen to me. So if I'm way off base, please tell me. If not, please send me some sort of documentation that will document keeping my product fresh and safe, and hopefully someone will listen to me. Um, and thanks again. So – so, Don, what do you? I mean, what do you, what do you think about what do you, what do you think about this? This isn't really a risky right. or not question to me. This is this is something right. I want to dive into. Yeah. So, well, it, it certainly would work for risky or not as well. But let's but let's let's talk about this. So, a first action item I would say is we should send this person a copy of the Rusty Bishop article, yes. right? Because that's going to yep. help a lot. Um, and then my second reaction is without without knowing more, I would say this sounds like a the quality issue, not a safety issue. <clears throat> and certainly, if you want to sell high-quality product to your customers, this may not be a way to do that, right, based on some of the descriptions from this individual's email message. But again, without knowing more, I mean, and, and they have mentioned the specific types of cheeses, but again, I think that this is more a, a quality issue than a safety issue. There's still also some things that are a little bit unclear to me. For example, there's cut pieces of cheese for display, right? but those are not for sale. It's only the wheel and the wheels, the intact wheels are also for display, but I guess eventually those get cut and sold. Yeah, right? what? And so right, right. A little bit of, there's a little bit about, in, the, in my mind, there's a little bit of you know, quality management, first in, first out, pop the stack, whatever, <laughs> whatever, you're, whatever you, you know, I guess for first in, last out is, is pop the stack. But um, uh, yeah, uh, but, but, but first in, first out, quality management, right? So there, th this may not, I mean, it's, and again, one of the things that, I mean, that, that the person describes is if cheese is getting moldy and if it looks unappetizing, that's not good for your customers, independent of any safety issues right but and and certainly you shouldn't sell moldy cheese that's that's not good but um yeah so that that's my initial reaction without doing any research or or even looking at the email as you read it to me yeah yeah no and, and i I'm, I'm in the same same boat as you are on on this i think that when i when this email rolled in last night that's what i thought i was like oh i gotta get that i gotta find that that bishop article um and and take a look at it um and and it's yeah so i i i think i'd answer it in a, in a very similar way which is it, do I see anything? I mean, when it comes to Parmesan, I'm not worried about it. Growing mold is kind of surprising, but mm -hmm. but 
Um, is that you know, is that a safety issue? What kind of molds are going to grow on Parmesan? I don't know. And, and I, again, I think this is one where I'd step a little closer towards the the world of, of cheese specialists and uh, and Kathy Glass's lab and um, and my couple of uh, friends and colleagues that I work with here. Um, uh, Clint Stevenson and his group, and then also um, uh, someone who we've talked about on previous podcasts, Dennis D'Amico at University of Connecticut, and just be like, what is, you know, tell me more about this, because this is a little outside of um, my, you know, my daily uh, aspect. But yeah, on the surface, it doesn't look like it's a food safety issue, but it might not be the best way to merchandise this product, which is For not, sure. yeah, yeah, which, which is a different different type of question. Um, and that uh, that completes uh, cheese uh, safety talk, uh, the uh, triad of questions. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, there was, there was some other stuff that, that I wanted to, um, to talk about with you and I'd sent, I sent you a text and, and I mentioned we were going to, we, uh, reached out to a correspondent, um, about who, who we often, who, who, if you go back through the archives, you, you might be able to figure out who we're talking about, but someone who's very close to the frozen food industry. Um, and, and so the article that, um, that I sent, was a very um, weird thing that came through ProMed, mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh, it's it's at kvor.com, and I actually couldn't after Google News search in this, I couldn't find any other uh, anything else on this, and so so I'm going to read almost the entire article. First botulism death in El Paso County since 2008. The El Paso coroner's, uh, County Coroner's Office is reporting the first local death from botulism since 2008. The coroner reports an 80-year-old woman died after eating prepared potatoes that had been previously frozen and then were left at room temperature for nearly two weeks. The El Paso County Health Department says improper food storage was also the cause of the last death from botulism more than a decade ago. End of story. What what's what is happening here, Don? What like I so so I. Uh, you know, I, I sent a message to to our uh, frozen food correspondent and and you, um, and said, you know, first of all, to to frozen food person, do you know anything about this one? It says frozen, not many details. Can't tell whether it's commercially prepared frozen potatoes or home preserved uh, frozen potatoes. And um, and you know, uh, our correspondent answers. Um, yeah, I don't. Not a lot of details, um, and and basically, she said, um, you know, might be a microenvironment. Uh, spores can be be present, and and so so. What do you what do you think's happening here? Well, this again, there's so much we don't know, and these, you know, ProMed is one of those things where I used to subscribe, and then I think I unsubscribe, or I I have it sent to a folder that I never look at. Um, and and we just don't know enough about this, right? Like like previously frozen. Uh, uh, prepared potatoes that had been previously frozen left at room temperature for two weeks. Well, that's not a best practice, right? And it's not surprising that it caused botulism. And in fact, this, you know, when we were talking about this uh, or texting about this, it reminded me there's a paper um, by Karen Dodds, which is published in Applied and Environmental Microbiology in the early 1990s, um, where basically, and this was in response to the um, the botulism outbreak from baked potatoes, right? And I don't know if you remember the baked potato uh, outbreak. Yes, yes. But this was a, an outbreak where people uh, baked potatoes 
um, in an oven for, for like a, you know, uh, it says again, sort of like the church supper, right? People that hadn't really were not experienced in baking stuff, um, um, or making food for, for quantities, you know, quantity of people, um, were doing it. And they, they basically, uh, wrapped up a whole bunch of potatoes. They baked them in an oven and then they turned the oven off and they left the potatoes in the oven, or as we microbiologists would say, incubation, <laughs> incubator, right? <laughs> and, and what happened over time is that those, those Potatoes grew Clostridium botulinum, and it w- and the potatoes in the oven wrapped in foil were anaerobic enough. The 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 baking process germinated the spores. It opened up the structure of the potato such that it was now amenable to growth of the microorganism, and people ate the baked potatoes and they and they died right and and so. But we and oh and the thing that that, that was just so, so cool about this paper to me as a young scientist interested in predictive microbiology is they built computer models right they they looked at different factors for for computer models for botulism growth and I'll find the paper and we'll, and we'll link to it in, in show notes so that was interesting to me but this is the same thing I so essentially the same thing right we uh, these are um, prepared potatoes so they're obviously they've been cooked I would imagine um, and then they've been frozen and then uh, if you leave them at room temperature, it's not surprising that there's spores there, right? Spores are found everywhere, including in the soil, which is also where we grow potatoes. And so it's not surprising that some pieces of potato are going to have a botulism spore or two or ten. And um, two weeks is definitely enough time to produce botoxin um, in in a potato. So um, it's not it's not surprising. Um, at, and oh, and the other thing that maybe is a little bit surprising is why uh, why uh, was it anaerobic, right? And right, we, and we had a discussion about this in our text message. Uh, you know, it's pretty easy to make something anaerobic enough to grow Clostridium botulinum spores. The baked potatoes in the oven were anaerobic enough. There's an example of botulism where onions. Cooked onions that were left on a grill in a in a in a diner type uh, restaurant operation. That pile of cooked onions uh, grew botulism, uh, made botulism toxin, right? And so uh, because of that, um, um, you know, that so that that pile of cooked onions was was anaerobic enough. If you take a big pot of something and you boil it um, and you leave that pot uncovered on the stove, the bottom of that pot is anaerobic enough to grow uh, Clostridium botulinum. And so it's not it's not really surprising to me that there were conditions in this package, vacuum packaged or not, right? It's gotcha. just, it's not yep, surprising yep. to me. It, we don't know the mass of the package, right? It's, is, is it a big, is it a big package? I mean, an 80 year old person is probably not going to buy um, big packages because they probably eat them pretty slowly, but maybe they're on a fixed budget and they went, they shopped at a, a some super, you know, uh, club store and they bought a ginormous thing of potatoes and they just left them out at room temperature. So it, the, you know, the bigger the mass, the higher the probability that you could get these anaerobic conditions. So yeah, not, not, not surprising um, uh, to me and, and unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so I, a couple of things before, before we leave this there, um, I, I don't know if the same Dodd paper, is it talking about, um, a, um, an outbreak in, uh, in also in El Paso, Texas, uh, in 1994. Well, Karen Dodd's a Canadian researcher. Oh. Um, uh, and, and so, and this was a, this was a modeling paper. Gotcha. I, I, don't, I don't have the paper up in front of me yet. So, well, okay. So, so anyway, I will link to this, um, uh, this paper in show notes, uh, it's in, it's from, uh, Frank Angulo 
Fred Angulo, not Frank Angulo, um, and uh, and a whole bunch of other folks. Uh, and it's entitled "The Large Outbreak of Botulism: The Hazardous Baked Potato." Uh, and so we we I think we've, we've talked yeah we've talked about baked potatoes um, in the in the past. This is a really nice um, paper that goes through an outbreak investigation that also happened to be in El Paso, Texas. Thirty uh, ill uh, individuals, uh, four on ventilation. Uh, all the food was from a Greek restaurant. During the investigation. Um, there were two dishes that that popped out, an, a, a potato dip um, and also an eggplant dish. And um, the during the investigation, um, uh, the eggplant dip uh, was was prepared and served to 11 people before the potato dip was prepared. Uh, there was type A botulinum toxin detected in both both of them. So they thought really there was a, a most likely a cross-contamination event. So it was the, the potatoes. Um, and so there, this is a really nice, um, uh, you know, ni- nice paper uh, where they go through and say, to determine how the potato dip became contaminated, spores from the outbreak strain of Clostridium botulinum were inoculated into a test batch of potato dip. The spores would not germinate and therefore would not produce toxin in the potato dip because of the low pH of the dip. This inoculation study indicated the dip must have been contaminated with preformed toxin um, when the uh, remaining individual ingredients of the potato dip were tested for botulinum toxin. No toxin was detected. So they they really showed that um, the most likely evidence was the baked potatoes that were that were then used in the potato dip, um, and and that was uh, the um, the situation and, and really highlight. This this micro environment. Um, I I you know again without knowing anything about it, um, whether it's a commercial uh, commercially available frozen potato or not. Um, I, I, my my first thought was, oh maybe this is someone who's who's using like a food saver vacuum seal, and they're they've blanched their potatoes. And then they've um, they've packaged them in this reduced oxygen, and then somehow forgot about them and left them out on the counter for for two weeks. And because what I what I can't get over in this is is the two week period at ambient temperature on a counter wherever it is. I I just don't know how spoilage didn't become an issue. And so that's where where I started thinking about well maybe maybe a, a vacuum sealed. Um, potato that had been blanched is, or maybe it wasn't blanched at all. Maybe it was just sliced up vacuum or vacuum sealed. And then they were put in the, in, in, in the freezer. I just don't like, I just couldn't get over the, the, the spoilage situation, like not being there. So I don't, I, well, I don't know. But we've, we've had other examples of botulism where again, it's, it's a race, right? And it depends upon what's there to start with the level of bot spores, the, um, the level of other organisms, you know, botulism itself or the, the clostridium botulinum itself, um, especially if it's the proteolytic type, um, which is what would, this would be, I suspect, um, does, uh, have, does cause spoilage. It's just itself. Um, but this is an 80 year old person, right? And maybe their sense of smell is not so great. And, um, you know, we, we have, uh, there's the, the famous, uh, Vichyssoise soup outbreak that, that started the whole low acid canned food regulation drive. Um, the people that ate that, um, thought that it probably tasted a little bit off, but they ate it anyway. Right. And that we, that's something that we hear again and again with, um, 
with these botulism outbreaks is, yeah, it didn't quite taste right, but I ate it anyway. Um, so, uh, yeah, so definitely, um, not, not a best practice to, to eat things that don't taste right or to leave potatoes on the counter for, for a couple of weeks. And the, the dot article, um, is, uh, w- will be linked in show notes. It's entitled combined effect of water activity and pH on in- inhibition of toxin production by Clostridium botulinum in cooked vacuum packed potatoes. Um, and that was published, um, I don't see when it was published, but it's it's not on the AEM website. But we'll we'll link to we'll link to it, and, and you can find out when it was published. But I think, it's, like I said, it's the early uh, oh here's the PDF um early 1990s. Um, and then in uh, in in finding that, I also found another paper um uh, entitled the analysis of the influence of environmental parameters on Clostridium botulinum time to toxicity by using three modeling approaches, um which is a paper that I published in applied environmental microbiology with a noted Canadian uh, William H Ross and uh, uh, retired Rutgers professor uh, emeritus uh, Dr. Tom Montville, and that's a, that was a really fun paper because Bill was the the stats guy, and Tom was the uh, microbiology guy, and I could I could knew enough stats to talk to Bill and enough microbiology to talk to Tom, and together we uh, we wrote a paper. So that was uh, based on some some data actually collected by uh, one of Tom's students that we that was not used for anything else. So that was that was fun. Nice, nice. Yeah. And uh, oh, okay, oh, okay. this is this is really early in my career. This Karen Dodds paper, well, maybe I didn't read it until later. It was published in March 1989, which is one month after I started at Rutgers. Whoa. So wow. There you go. March early that, in my career. That's awesome. Um, okay, so before we leave potatoes, you mentioned something that I had forgotten. Uh, so I started Googling this. Um, yeah, we have seen uh, fro- uh, 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 artic- or articles. We have seen uh, an outbreak of botulism in the past from commercially produced potato soups. Now, these weren't frozen soups, um, but uh, this was um, uh, in 2011. And so uh, from our, our always favorite publication of CDC, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, MMWR, um, in January and April 2011, CDC provided antitoxin treatment for two persons with toxin type A botulism associated with consumption of potato soup produced by two companies. Uh, January 28, 2011, an Ohio resident, aged 29 years, was ho- hospitalized after five days of progressive dizziness, blurred vision, dysphagia, and difficulty breathing. The patient required mechanical ventilation and botulism antitoxin. January 18th, he had tasted potato soup from a bulging plastic container, noted a bad taste, and discarded the remainder. Right. So as you said, these, these, uh, the spoilage and taste is, is something um, that we see in, in these situations. The soup had been purchased on December 7th from a refrigerated section of a local grocer, but had been kept unrefrigerated for 42 days. So, so, so here, and maybe this is where like that missing, where I see a package of like shredded frozen hash browns as a commercially produced potato packet product. And really, we could be seeing like something like this, which um, is in a hard container. Um, it's it's sealed, and and you know might maybe it was purchased in the frozen food department or aisle, but ends up somehow accidentally in someone's pantry, and then they open it up and they're like, oh, well, there's other soups and cans in here. Um, so this isn't like oh, I just forgot about it. Maybe it's a mistake. Uh, but yeah, uh, being able to. Um, uh, to stand up so it was bulging, but standing up um, as, as not enough that he was able to eat it. Um, 
And then the second uh, case in this in this outbreak was uh, uh, in April 2011, a Georgia resident, age 41 years, hospitalized after uh, progressive dizziness and dysphagia. Um, on April 3rd, she had tasted potato soup purchased from a local grocer, noted a sour taste, and discarded the remainder. The soup stored in a plastic container labeled Keep Refrigerated in letters one-eighth of an inch tall, which is something I want to come back to, um, <laughs> had been purchased on March 16th, but had left, been left unrefrigerated for 18 days. She was hospitalized for 16 days and then transferred uh, with residual weakness to rehab facility. Um, so, the, I, so again, um, we don't know, uh, what, what this is and I don't want to speculate, but I could see from these, po- you know, older cases, how it is easy to make that mistake, especially if it says keep refrigerated in letters that are an eighth of an inch tall. Cause that's pretty, that's pretty small. You may not see that. Um, and you might forget where you purchased it or someone else bought it and they put it in the wrong spot. Cause I have, uh, every once in a while, uh, been asked to put the groceries away when Danny has come home. Uh, and I'm pretty good at knowing where they came from. Uh, but if, uh, it, it may not always be the same person who purchases them. Yeah. And you know, I occasionally have, uh, what we colloquially refer to, um, in, in this household as a brain fart and, uh, we'll put something in the wrong place, right? Something that's supposed to be refrigerated in the cabinet or something in the cabinet <laughs> that's supposed to go in the cabinet goes in the refrigerator. And then it's even more confusing, uh, with something like uh, peanut butter, natural peanut butter that will separate. Right. And so sometimes, uh, you know, it starts off in the non-refrigerated section and then you mix it up and then you put it in the refrigerated section, not because it needs it, but to stop it from separating. So, uh, yeah, it's confusing sometimes. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And I could see this happening with, like, Tetra Packs of chicken stock, right? Because you buy that in the oh, right. in the non-refrigerated aisle, and then you open it up, and you've got, a, I, I would say, a pretty low acid, uh, you know, a, a high, high pH, uh, high water activity product that um, may end up uh, inadvertently back in, in someone's pantry because that's where it started. Um, so, yeah, and it's different from like, you know, ketchup or, uh, condiments, which start in the pantry and end up in, in the fridge for, for safety reasons, for quality reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, so anyway, yeah. In, interesting one. And, uh, maybe we'll have some follow up. And, uh, if there's anybody in, uh, the Texas, uh, department of health or, uh, El Paso County who listens to the podcast and has any more information about it, we'd be happy to talk about it and follow up. Yep. Um, uh, all right, so there was there was that. I, oh, so, oh yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, uh, you, cool. can, can we talk about this McDonald Burger? Yes, yes, we can. I I, I had one uh, media request, and then another one came in overnight, and uh, I emailed the person back. Haven't heard from them. So, um, have, has this this has come across your radar at all? Yeah, and it came across a while, like a while ago. A while ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, but go. Let's let's talk about it. Right. So we'll we'll link. Uh, so there's been a couple of and this this seems like a story that comes up every now and again. Um, so we'll read from the most recent um, uh, most recent uh, uh, story that came across my desk. Uh, the, it's this is from Fox News. Twenty uh, year old McDonald's burger still looks like brand new smells like cardboard. Um, despite its useful appearance, this hamburger is old enough to vote. A McDonald's burger purchased in 1999 Looks like it could have been cooked yesterday, according to its owners. Can we get a owner? Is it possible that we could get this burger to vote in the <laughs> in the next election? It would. Is it? Is it? I mean, will it have voter ID? Is it? <laughs> oh. um, uh, the decades-old meat only smells faintly of cardboard. Um, 
Uh, David Whipple originally bought the burger at a McDonald's in Logan, Utah in July of 1999. Uh, KUTV reports. I think that's the original, that's the original article that I, uh, that I, I looked at. Yeah. Well, maybe. Um, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, uh, he originally purchased the burger to use as a demonstration about enzymes and deterioration. Uh, he explained it got stuck in a coat pocket. The coat got thrown in the back of my van, and I guess it just uh, hung up on our just got hung up in our, our in our closet in, in Logan, uh, Utah. Subsequently, we moved from Logan uh, to St. George, and it stayed there for a couple of years. I think my wife was giving the coat away or something and found it. Um, you know, the burger went viral in 2013 when it was first revealed to the world. Um, after that, it was put back in a tin. I mean, you know, this is just I – mean, anyway, so the reason why the first reporter and the second reporter reach out to me is, of course, there's a response from McDonald's, and they wanted to double-check that McDonald's wasn't trying to uh, to, to snow them with this. And it's this – is, this is kind of food safety 101. So when I talked to the first reporter, I talked about the fact that, well – you know, we don't know the pH. We don't know the water activity. I suspect that the burger was initially held in, in an environment that allowed it to dry out. And guess what? If you dry out the pickle, if you dry out the burger, if you dry out the bun, um, they're going to last for a really long time. It's a race between the spoilage organisms and the dehydration rate, right? There's a reason why beef jerky lasts a long time. It's because it's dry. And I could imagine a scenario where the bun absorb the moisture from the burger. If Again, it was placed in a, um, uh, a relatively low relative humidity environment. I haven't looked up the weather in, in Logan, Utah, but if it's up in the mountains, it's going to be dry and it's going to be amenable to dehydration. And so it's not, it's not really that surprising. And so as much as this is kind of irritating to me, on the other hand, this is an opportunity to, um, to actually t talk to people a little bit about food safety and a little bit about food science and a little bit about food technology. So I, that's what I did. And uh, the story that the reporter I talked to yesterday, the story hasn't come out yet, but uh, if it comes uh, up uh, by the time this episode posts, we'll, we'll try to link to it. And I, I see you've also found some related stories from around the world uh, that we should probably talk about now as well. Yeah. yeah. And so, so there's like uh, an Australian example of someone holding a burger for a long time. There's an Icelandic one where it's on display, a burger and fries on display at a hotel. Um, and, and I remember, so I, I remember this first coming up and I was like, when did we like, have we talked? about this on the podcast i don't think we did but i remember having a twitter conversation and i was like well uh, all right let me google this and it turns out that um uh, our friend friend of yours from oh, the internet yes. jay kenzie lopez alt uh from the food lab uh talked about this on serious eats and really does a nice job talking about the science of it um and, and i'll skip to you know the uh, too long didn't read uh he, he says <laughs> long story short mcdonald's burgers don't rot because they dry out that's it <laughs> Yep. And it was so anyway, it was good. Oh, well, we have to read the, read the next sentence. If you think a McDonald's burger that doesn't rot yeah. is unnatural or gross, you should also count saltine crackers, beef jerky, hardtack, croutons, dried beans, or pretty much any nutrient rich, shelf stable food in your pantry as unnatural and gross. Yep. So there you go. Nice job, Chef Kenji. Yep, exactly. Good good job. Anyway, that's it. Earlier disagreements. Uh, I support you on this. Yep. And and it's. Yeah, it's it's one of those uh, one of those things where uh, yeah, this uh, when when you step back and think about the science, it's not a not a surprise. Although what is surprising is how many people like if you see read some of these like um, articles on how people have uh, like why they have these things. Um, Adelaide residents 
Casey Dean and Edward Nitz bought the Quarter Pounder with cheese in 1995 with their friend Jono, who was visiting from out of town at the time. Unable to finish the patty, Jono asked his friends to hold on to it until the next time he visited. He couldn't have guessed the implications of his request. After the meal, Nitz talked the boxed-up hamburger into his cabinet at home where it would sit until he moved out. The quarter pounder remained in pristine condition, so instead of throwing it away, he handed it off to his sister before going to live overseas. Like, it's a this family is, heirloom. <laughs> yeah, this is an amazing – like, it's kind of an amazing – I'd actually like to listen to the podcast, the five-part podcast that talks about how Casey – Edward and Jono all became friends and the story of the quarter pounder um, <laughs> that like th- th- it's just uh, just a, a good there's a good narrative here yeah uh, so so anyway yeah um, but yeah so I mean it's like I, I well, this will go Wait, d- just disclaimer there's not a five-part podcast about that yet not yet but please someone <laughs> do this please someone create this podcast uh, the, these are, uh, th- this will go away, right? You, you'll answer these questions, uh, for the next two weeks, people will talk about the, uh, really old McDonald's burger that is able to vote. Um, and, uh, and then old enough to vote. Sorry. Voting, voting fraud is, is, is a, is a fiction. Yeah. Voting fraud, fraud is a fiction, even if you're a burger. Um, and especially if you're a burger, <laughs> right. And then two years from now, we'll talk about it again. Right, like this will it'll come back. Yeah, um, like the five second rule. Yeah, <laughs> it's the gift that keeps on giving, gives keeps get, giving all year round. Um, all right, so we got that. I see that I put some stuff into the podcast uh, Dropbox today for my phone that didn't. I don't know if you can even open the files. I can't open them. Uh, they're they're not. They're yeah. They look like they might be HTML, um, and they're not. Um, uh, they're they don't have the extension. So let me let me try to um, rename them as HTML and see if they oh, see if they open. So, and I'll I'll start with uh, one of them, and I'll send you the um, the uh, um, the article if you can't get them open. Um, yeah, if you if you just if you just change the, if you just add an HTML extension and then you click on them, they should open. So. Oh well, that's good. All right, so let's talk about um, the frozen uh, microwavable um, uh, Australian outbreak. And I don't think we've talked about this outbreak at all, uh, but it's something that's been going on. So this is something that was in uh, Food Safety News yesterday um, by Joe Whitworth. Australian salmonella outbreak grows. Bushfires threaten food safety. We're not going to talk about the bushfires, but we are going to talk about 90 people uh, in uh, Australia sick with salmonella from frozen microwave meals. And these, uh, it's uh, salmonella velterveridin. Veltschlong, I think is what you're thinking of. Javiana. Javiana, so this outbreak uh, was actually popped up in uh, back in in October, and uh, the, it, uh, a brand of frozen microwave meals was was recalled. Um, and, and so this is, I, I, again, it's one of these ones, um, core power foods is, is the, uh, company who had their products recalled, uh, as part of this, they halted their production. They, um, they, they have frozen meals that are 310 or 340 gram sizes, variety going nuts, deep South chili, um, Muay Thai meatballs, holy meatballs, naked chicken. Uh, seismic chicken, old school and Smoky Mountain meatballs, um, and anyway, it, we it's a it, it's one that 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 popped up because 
just the importance of you know in in my world of handling foods uh, by consumers and looking at how microwave meals are are actually produced it's not something that we've done um, research on yet but we do see uh, folks handling lots of different foods not like we would expect them to and cooking things in a different way um, with with this having a validated cooking instruction, is is you know first of all paramount really really important um and required here in the u.s and in canada and i assume in australia i don't know that that for sure um but do people always follow those validated cooking instructions no um and so keeping salmonella out of the product in the first place is is really really important um and and we've seen it with pot pies we've seen frozen pizzas here and it's just a num- another one of of these um of these outbreaks that uh that puts pressure on the frozen food industry to to do two things one keep the pathogen out of there in the first place which i know that they're really trying to do but two communicate food safety and safe food handling to their consumers and 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 especially when it comes to microwaves just knowing the like how complicated microwaves are and that we have lots of different wattage and wattage decays over time. And whether I have an, I have an old microwave in the house that we moved into three years ago that doesn't have a, um, it doesn't rotate. It doesn't have a turntable in it. And so I've got to manually rotate it um, to get that, that even reheat. And I use a a thermometer because I'm a nerd about these things, but all of that is, you know, uh, I don't think we're going to to fix this this issue um, without being able to to figure out how to how to communicate and and impress on the on the consumers how to handle these uh, I, products. I know how to fix the issue. Uh, keep the pathogen out of there in the first place. Well, sort of. You you don't sell a microwavable chicken product that doesn't come with already fully cooked chicken in it. Yeah, right. That's the ultimately, unfortunately, that is the solution. Right. Yep. yep. Uh, which would lower quality, um, but it would keep people from getting sick. The thing that's interesting to me about this outbreak is that the 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 the, the uh, article from January eighth uh, has ninety people sick. The article from October thirty first has fifty people sick. Yep. And so I wonder. And again, you know, I'm a little spoiled by by FDA and CDC, right? And this this is this is from Food Safety News, um, not from uh, Canadian or Canadian uh, Australian. Uh, they still have the Queen on their money. Australian, um, <laughs> same, same uh, Australian um, uh, uh, health organization. But I, I get spoiled by those. Uh, Epi curves that you see, and and when the and when the recall was announced, and when the when people got sick, and I wonder, is this because the recall's been ineffective, or is it just because it's just taking a while for all these cases to kind of come through? Yeah, well, and oh, right, right, and and is it, um, you know, the 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 certain challenge that you have here in this type of product is it's frozen, right? I, right, so it's got a long shelf life. So if, yeah. if, if it's on the marketplace or if it's in people's pantries and it's not recalled, then it's still out there posing a risk. Yeah, and and I, I mean, so oh, the speaking of uh, freezers, I I'm, we're sitting and uh, viewing TV last night, and a beep is going off in my house, and I think that it's the 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 robot vacuum cleaner that we have because usually it gets stuck on something, but it's not. Turns out my freezer was at uh, the the elevated temperature. Um, now, Whoa. yeah, but fortunately, elevated temperature in my freezer, um, I have it set to go off if it gets to 22 degrees Fahrenheit because I can program it. So it's usually set at zero Fahrenheit. 
if it if it's beeping, it means that someone's left the the freezer door open, and it was open just a little bit. And we've got one of these freezers that has um, it, it's a. Uh, our, our fridge is on top with the double door and the freezer's on the below with a big drawer. And my kids are constantly getting um, frozen treats like uh, popsicles and, and things out of there. And one of them had, uh, you know, maybe three or four hours earlier gotten a treat out of the, uh, the freezer and didn't close the door fully. Um, but it made me think like, there's a bunch of crap in my freezer that we just, that I don't like, I don't know how long it's been in there. We don't eat a lot of um, frozen microwave dinners, but there's definitely like chicken that's been in there for a while that we purchased and froze. And actually it made me think like I should go and see whether any of this stuff has been recalled. Cause it's been in there for quite, for quite some time. It made me think to do that. I didn't do that. Maybe I'll do that um, later, but you know, stuff just goes in freezers and it, and it ends up below other things and it's hard to find them, right? Like you don't know what's always in your freezer. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. So I can see how this outbreak could, could go on for quite some time, not just like getting it off the market, but also that it's sitting in, in lots of freezers. I I still have, you know, I'm in props to, to food safety news for, for finding this, but I'm, I I guess I could just sort of jump around and start Googling stuff, but I want to know like why, like which meals have been implicated in actual illnesses, right? And and are do all of these contain chicken? Because the ones that say that they have meatballs, they probably don't contain chicken, right? Or are they are they chicken meatballs? Like this is a lot of product. Yeah. And it's a pretty big outbreak. And so I wonder, again, I want to know more about what's going on in this facility. Was there some, was there problems? You know, how did it, I, I just have so many more questions uh, that, that these articles are not answering. Yeah. And so, okay. I sent you um, a, a link to uh, New South Wales health uh, in Australia it back way back in October that, uh, that talks about, you know, the, the recall, um, it, you know, basically the same information that's in food safety news, um, that that's there, uh, it doesn't go into like, we, I don't see anything about a, um, an investigation. Um, I, I mean, I'm sure there's an investigation going on. I just don't see any, um, information about, about that. Um, and, and yeah, I, I agree. We're, we're, we are kind of spoiled by CDC and FDA, um, and USDA FSIS on, on, on all coordinating and us being able to see those investigation updates and the outbreak updates with the epi curves and dates. Um, cause that, that information is just not here. Just basically they updated numbers. How many people are sick now? How many people are sick now? Um, yeah. so, um, yeah. So, so anyway, um, that, that was, uh, one, uh, one thing that I wanted to, to talk about. Um, and then, uh, I think the only other thing that was in there was related to the, uh, potatoes. Um, so uh, I got a, I got a question for you. You mentioned, I've been thinking about this because the, uh, this week's Roderick on the line, uh, they talk about Roombas and you mentioned your, your vacuum yeah. and beeping. How does your dog react to it? Cause I think if we got, I've, I've had one, an early model and it didn't work that well. Um, I'm not sure it would work in our house because it, the floor is constantly littered with dog toys and things that would, and blankets and things that would probably mess it up. But also I worry that my dogs would freak out and kill it. Try yeah. to kill it. So, so the dog initially was not super happy with it so what he would do <laughs> he would just jump up on, on like if the if it was going and we don't have a we, we we've got a, a a knockoff we've got a, a d bot um so it's you know it's a, it's it's a little uh hockey puck that vacuums things mm-hmm. um 
And oh, and so it's not a it's not a Roomba brand. It's not a Roomba brand. Uh, but so he he jumps up on the he jumped up on the couch and he would just bark at it for a while, and it goes underneath the couch. Uh, we have hardwood floors in um, most of our downstairs. And so it it goes underneath the uh, the couches and the chairs that he sits on all day, and he, he now he really doesn't pay attention to it at all unless it just like surprises him by coming out of like from underneath this couch that he happens to be on. Um, it used to chase him around a little bit, uh, and he would run away from it. But he I think they they coexist fairly well. But we've had this now for. Um, I think two years. So, so it, and it was, it was maybe like a month that, um, that he kind of got upset by it, but now, and we don't run it when we're not home. We will, uh, right. we just kind of let it go in the background while we're doing other things. Um, and we don't run it overnight because, um, it, it will get stuck on things and just beeps. Beep. And, and yeah. then we're like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll just do this. We'll do it when we're around, just like we would be vacuuming. And it works really like it works really well. We, we love mm-hmm. it. Hmm. But yeah, okay, the dog's cool. fine. Yeah. But our dog's pretty low. He's pretty chill. He doesn't. Yeah, well, see, our, our dogs will attack the the regular vacuum cleaner when a human is using it. And so, <laughs> you know, we have to kind of do that strategically, like make sure the dogs are in this part of the house when Kristen's vacuuming, because he's usually Kristen vacuuming. Um, oh, hey, uh, uh, a real-time follow-up um, <laughs> from the from me Googling stuff. Um, uh, if you go on the core power foods website, uh, I just looked for holy meatballs, which was part of the outbreak. Right. Yep. Um, and it's hundred percent premium Australian beef. So it's beef and chicken. And so I've just got some real, like, again, was that part of the outbreak because of cleaning and sanitation and clean breaks? Right. Or is that, I mean, do people actually get sick from eating this? So I, I've again, more, more questions than answers with respect to this Australian outbreak. We should connect with, we got another correspondent. We know somebody who works for meat and livestock Australia, right? Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to this individual. Okay. Um, and find out what we know, what they, what we know about it. And, and also say, um, that, uh, everything that I see about fires in Australia is not good. Uh, oh, I, it's, yeah, man, it's not good. No, no, no. Um, so we got that. There was one other thing I wanted to talk about. Oh, it was something I tweeted about yesterday. Let me go find it about, um, oyster beds in, 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 um, in uh, France, did you see? Did you see my tweet on this? I did not. So, and I follow you so closely. It's I surprising. Know. It's on the. Let me let me find the Twitter. I'm using so. The, oh, I did see. No, I did see this tweet, and I did read about this. And yeah, it's a big norovirus outbreak, and it's basically shut down these uh, these French uh, oyster beds. It's yeah. a, it's a pretty serious. And then basically, the oyster people are saying, "Well, it's the sewage and overflow, and we've had you know we, we had weather, and and the overflow is the sewage treatment, and so the the organisms get into the environment. And of course, as as you know, regular listeners of the podcast will probably know, and as as food safety nerds will know, um, oysters. Uh, any shellfish, any filter feeding uh, shellfish will concentrate pathogens from the environment through their filter feeding process, and they can concentrate hepatitis A virus, they can concentrate norovirus, they can concentrate Vibrio, uh, they can, I suppose, concentrate salmonella if it was there. So if they can filter out viruses, they can filter out things that are bigger than viruses like bacteria. So Yeah, yeah, no, it's, I mean, you, 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 nailed, you nailed it. Um, I, I, the thing that that struck me really interesting is is this is a situation where you've got the um, the farming you know the agricultural community the fish fisheries um, who, who are um, at, sort of at odds with the tourism and I don't know so so anyway the um, the article uh, and it's in the Guardian we'll link to this um, on on show notes. Um, 
the producers have blamed local officials who, quote, boast of welcoming more and more residents and tourists, uh, signing uh-huh. building permits with a vengeance while forgetting to take care of the management of human waste and sanitation. Um, quote says, uh, astronomical quantities of polluted water are poured into the sea without raising the eyebrows of the authorities and are poisoning our coasts and oysters, which are now laden with human gastroenteritis virus, norovirus. The water of the uh, Morbian coast is now unhealthy. Oyster farmers in the coastline are dying in, in, um, in total indifference, they wrote. This was from uh, a peti- petition from the Alliance of Oyster Farmers. It's that that was a part that was really interesting to me, where um, it, it just a uh, you you have a at the crossroads in lots of places in agriculture having people close to to farming environments, um, and and usually it's the people that are complaining of like smells of uh, of manure. And in here, the 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 oyster farmers are are really pointing at too many people close to their to their livelihood. Um, and and you know, it, it, again, it's it's an article in Popular Press. It, it, it's the you know, largely um, uh, based on um, you know uh, the interviews and conversations. There's not a whole lot of reference to to science on what the oyster beds were like before and how much the the uh, water system, sanitation, water sanitation system is overwhelmed and all that kind of stuff. But that's what really st- struck me here is kind of an interesting um, situation where you've got um, this this crossroads there. And and what do you what do you do right? Like, do you say, oh, we can't have more people here? No, you probably need to think about how the water is treated um, and get more. More, well, we we kind of need more information um, on that, but clearly it's affecting not only public health but the livelihoods of the of the industry, and that's a that's a really that's a, it's a, just a really tough tough situation, and and it probably is, is similar to what we would see in oyster farming all throughout uh, the coastal areas of the U.S. as well. Um, so, well, and I would I would push back a little bit and say, and maybe it's because I've been listening to um, uh, too many of these uh, socialism podcasts, but I think we could put restrictions. We could say, we look, could. Yep. we're not gonna, we're not going to let people build, or you can't you can't if if you if you authorize building of more houses, then you need to also authorize funding for improved sewage treatment, right? Like that's those relationships are not exact, but I'm sure that it's known, right? I'm sure there are best practices for you know, keep dealing with these kind of eventualities. So, um, and if anyone is going to protect the livelihood and the way of life of oyster farmers, it's going to be France, right? The I mean, French. Look, at what, look at what they've done for cheese and wine and, and it's such an important part of French culture. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, 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 it is a very interesting, it is a very interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, um, yeah, so we'll, we'll see. I mean, anytime there's a norovirus, uh, outbreak associated with oysters, it, it piques my interest because, um, although oysters and probably these ones are, are, are very likely to be consumed raw, um, even steaming these oysters for a, a short steam, um, is not gonna, um, really reduce the, the norovirus there. And we, we had an outbreak here, um, about 10 years ago in, in Raleigh, uh, linked to, uh, steamed oysters, not raw oysters at an, at a, uh, oyster bar here. And, and so that, that always like, I always find that of interest. And, and in that story, if, if I, my memory serves me correctly, I think what had happened was the steaming, it was at a place called the 42nd street oyster bar, which is kind of an icon, uh, restaurant, iconic restaurant in downtown Raleigh. Um, also has a, an outlet at, at the RDU, um, airport. 
they had um and you know enough times passed that I can probably share all the back channel information that I know on this one. They had oh please do yeah they had switched um, oyster suppliers. And the oyster suppliers were giving them larger oysters than they had been using in the past. And, oh, and so, yes. Yeah, so the steam that they were using, it wasn't enough. Um, yep. and, or and, and really, like, it may have never been enough, but that was definitely an aspect. Um, they were much more – they were under-steaming it uh, compared to what they what they had been doing. And what was really interesting is that the the – uh, the Epi did not connect one case, and this was like a lot of people, like like 100, 125 Two, people. 200, 280 people. There you go. 280 illnesses. None of them were linked to eating, consuming the raw oysters, different suppliers. The raw, the oysters. Oh, yep. man. I know. Crazy, right? So the, cool. oyster, the oysters that, that were destined for raw um, came from a different place, different, different quality level. Uh, and then they're uh, destined for cooked and steamed, uh, came from somewhere else. And uh, yeah, so it, it just made for a really um, you know, interesting outbreak um, at, at the time. And then we did some work uh, that we never, I, I don't know if we actually presented this at IAFP. I think we did. Um, let me see. Uh, we never published the paper on this, and again, see earlier in the podcast on writing. Um, <laughs> but there was uh, – I had a, a student, um, and actually it was a, a, a student who worked for me as an undergrad um, and continued. She did uh, – worked all through her undergraduate um, career – um, and she was a summer intern and then she went and did her master's with me and just started, uh, a job like in, in food safety at the department of agriculture. But she looked at, um, uh, sort of coordinating, uh, interviews of seafood restaurants in the triangle in the area that, that we live, not just in Raleigh, cause there wasn't enough about whether like whether they thought about norovirus and how did they communicate norovirus risk to consumers and whether they looked at steaming differently than raw and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I can't remember, um, I can't remember the details of what she found. Um, so, so that's, I just know that we, we did that, that work. <laughs> and I think, I think it was a poster. Uh, let me look and let's see if I can find it. Yeah. Well, you know, and well, while you're doing that, I mean, there's a reason why uh, McDonald's controls the size of its burgers, and it's a reason why they have the style of cooking that they have, um, where the grill comes down and it doesn't release until a certain time goes by. There's a reason why they have temperature calibration of those of those grills, right? It's all because of, of a problem, avoiding a problem like this. Now, admittedly, cooking oysters is more complicated, and the uh, 42nd Street Oyster Bar is not McDonald's, right? It's a it's a two two uh, restaurant chain, um, but it's um, but but this is exactly why you know you have to understand food safety. And guess what? If you change change the size of the oysters that you're cooking, um, that will amplify the risk. Now, again, as you said, um, it's not just about oysters; it's about sourcing. It's about and it, they, and the initial cooking process might not have been adequate anyway, but using larger oysters definitely compromised that uh, that time temperature uh, relationship. Yep, yep. Okay. So um, thank you for uh, giving me some space to find the uh, technical session that we did. And it was actually Nicole Arnold, who is also oh, a former student sure. who you know, you know who's now an uh, assistant professor at uh, uh, East Carolina University, um, teaching food science uh, there. Um, and she was the, the lead on, on this uh, project, and Sarah Cope was the other 
um, individual helped uh, collect data as the second author. Um, anyway, this is knowledge and risk communication of undercooked oyster preparation in restaurants. Um, and so uh, Nicole and Sarah um, uh, interviewed um, managers uh, and and individuals that we could find at restaurants uh, in person or by phone call. Twenty six restaurants um, uh, were contacted, and um, restaurant personnel at forty seven percent of these restaurants, so it was n equals nineteen, said if a customer asked whether steamed oysters are fully cooked, defined as free of all foodborne pathogens, that was our definition, mm-hmm. um, they would respond yes. Well, fifty two percent said no, or that hmm. it depended on certain parameters. And hmm. and so so anyway, we uh, this is, this is something we should revisit uh, now that I'm looking at this because uh, there, there's a starting point there because the food code actually talks about oysters being cooked to an internal temperature of one forty five for 15 seconds for Vibrio, uh, I think. And then, but norovirus is much higher. So, so we're getting some kill, um, but not, not fully, uh, not, not, we're getting a kill of one pathogen, but not, not, uh, one that's maybe more prevalent. Well, and reading from your introduction, 145 for 15 seconds for Vibrio, 194 yeah. for 1.5 minutes for norovirus. Yeah, Those yeah. are wildly different, right? I, I'm actually interested that, that, uh, about half the restaurant personnel said that steamed oysters are not fully cooked. I, I'm surprised that the percentage is that high. Yeah, but absolutely. I, I think that was uh, surprising uh, to me at the time too. <laughs> I say it's surprising now that we're now that we're talking about it. Um, yeah, you should, should you should you should publish this. You should publish this. Someone should someone should write this up. Um, and hey, so look- when when you do write it up, um, will you promise me not to write a sentence that's that that says something like this study demonstrates there's a disconnect between restaurant employee food safety knowledge? Yes, yes, I, I promise. I don't. I don't like to. I don't like to use the word disconnect in that way. Yeah, I, yeah. that seems like a colloquialism to me. I, think I, you're would right. flag, I would flag that if I was reviewing your manuscript. I, just yeah, so you know. It's done. Yeah, consider that done. I just. Uh, I just put a note. I put a note on that. Oh, good, good. Um, so, uh, I, I, is that a show? I think that's a show. show. Um, good. Yeah. I mean, that was, I see, we just talked a couple of days ago, and I knew that we had enough to talk about because I was. And, and I was we had fired. like nothing in the Dropbox. No. Um, but that means, uh, folks who are listening, uh, make sure you send us feedback because we will uh, we will always talk about feedback. Um, and I'm sure there's going to be enough food safety stuff that'll happen in the next two weeks that we'll be able to fill another show. Uh, Don, as always. Oh, should we? Oh, should, can we do one more? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. this is. I just saw this. This is. This is very good. So, and maybe there's not enough to talk about. But um, this is. This comes from friend of the show and um, uh, all around great uh, Twitter follow. Um, Tar Heel fan, yes, P-H-A-N, yes. Brett Weed. Um, uh, and he has a poster that he tweeted out, um, which <laughs> the title, we just have to read the title of the, I don't know if there's much to talk about, but the title of the poster is rent a duck for a week. <laughs> Campylobacteriosis cluster associated with duck rental. Duck rentals. 2019. Who knew duck rental was so dangerous? I didn't know that duck rental was so dangerous. I, this is I didn't even good. know it existed. Yeah. Um, so, so on this, um, I, I've got a uh, – I co-advise a PhD student who started uh, last fall. Um, uh, her name is uh, is Catherine, and she is working with, with me um, and a colleague, uh, Megan Jacob, on animal-human – interaction sites like goat yoga and and now duck <laughs> rentals 
So, so we're looking at just like places where people, so I, and we may have talked about this briefly. Um, one of my former graduate students, uh, Savannah Everhart, who's now, I'm just like dropping all the names. All you are. Part. Yeah. Savannah, um, uh, did her master's here at NC State, and she's now at Texas Tech um, University doing her, her PhD. But she um, looked at um, when she was uh, like kind of like an in-between project for her um, right at the start of her, her um, master's. She helped us um, understand better about animal interactions. And Megan and I put on this uh, workshop for uh, like petting zoos and, and um, animal event places. And, and we it was basically like, all right, let's have a big discussion about things that we see that are risks. And then you guys tell us what you're doing. Cause we don't really know what's, what's going on. And then let's have this like open and frank conversation of like, ah, yeah, maybe don't do it like that. And so what we learned in, in that, um, in, in, in that work was that there are places in, you know, in North Carolina. So I guess it's happening elsewhere where animal, um, like animal support, not, not support animals, but like animal therapy is happening at like nursing homes. So this isn't just like dogs and, and cats, but people are taking like goats and chickens and ducks into into nursing homes and long-term care facilities so people can interact with them because it's like they're cute little animals. And, and, and I remember like hearing someone tell us this and then looking at Megan and I'm like, Oh, that just, it doesn't sound, that doesn't sound like a really, like a really good idea. Um, but, but like we've talked about with, with raw milk, what I'm so interested in, what Megan's interested in is not saying, Oh, that's a really bad idea, but it's, but like saying, okay, so you're doing this. Here are all the things that you should think about. How do you do this in a way that makes it safe? And maybe we won't be able to arrive at a place where, it's it's really really low risk, but let's let's at least talk about um, you know best practices in that kind of situation. So so anyway, that's that's my rent a duck. Take a duck to a nursing home, rent a duck for a week. <laughs> I don't know I don't know if, if you should do that, but there's a nice poster from from Brett Weed. So exactly. All right. Well, uh, All right, I, th- I think I think I th- now thank I think that's a show. I think that's a show. Uh, so Don. Um, thanks again, food safety talk listeners, check us out at foodsafetytalk.com. There's show notes there. Um, there are old episodes. Uh, go, go listen to more of these. Uh, and, uh, Don, I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
All right. All right. So here is um, all right. So this one's mine, and you, you we still haven't posted the last one, right? No, and and yeah. I, I my plan was to get it posted yesterday, and that didn't happen. Um, no rush. I do. I do. Yeah. So I, I do want to get it posted this week. So maybe you should plan on posting this one next week. Okay. I've got, so I'm now planning on three hours for these. So I'm like going ah. to do this now. Like yeah, I'm not going right. to post it, but I'll, I'll yep. get it all ready to go up. Yep. Um, and then, yeah, we'll leave it a couple of days after you post. Um, all right. So how does January 22nd look at like 10 o'clock? Uh, looks good. Stu looks good. I got a meeting at, uh, can we make it 1030? I got a meeting on campus at nine. Yeah. And then I've got 1030 until two one thirty. Yeah. The only thing I've got that day is a meeting that starts at three Perfect. and I've got to be on campus for that. But, uh, yeah, so I can either do it from home and then drive in or I can do it from work. So okay, yep. cool. FST 204. Oh, we didn't, you know what we didn't talk about? You're um the you're you're immortalized in the Dubai Friday treat. I can't believe <laughs> you're in the cards. It's amazing. Yes. Oh, I know. I was so you know, and I'm such an idiot. I got the cards. <clears throat> I looked at them and I set them aside and it wasn't until I started watching Max's uh video on card tricks that he called it out. So I, I feel like ashamed that I didn't even notice. Well, I, I so should... I got the cards, I opened them uh -huh. up, and I was like, oh, these are really, really beautiful. And then I was looking at, like, all the face cards, and I was like, oh, it's Merlin, it's Alex, look, there's a tennis racket. Yes, yes exactly. All yep. those things. And then I did the same thing, I put them down, and then I saw your tweet, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I totally missed it, too. Like, I never even saw, I, I never even looked at the Jokers. <laughs> so, what a, what a super cool thing. Yes, um, and what a, they're, they're good. And so did you watch the, ma the uh, magic, uh, did you watch the whole thing? Is it good? Uh, no, I only watched up to the point where he mentioned that I was on a card. <laughs> and then you went straight to Twitter. <laughs> I went, and I, no, I went, then I went to, straight to look at the card uh, and then, to Twitter. Uh, then I yeah. took a picture and then I put it on Twitter and then it's a long, it's a long ass video. It's like an hour and a half. Um, so I, yeah, I, you know, I don't have, I guess I could, the problem is my workflow, my workflow for watching video is to watch Letter Kenny while I'm eating um, <laughs> uh, breakfast or lunch. So I get in like a half an episode. Oh, um, that's awesome. Oh, and and so oh, and and so my my uh, Letter Kenny on the back of a truck, uh, uh, la la la, um, uh, ran out. Um, but but now I have a Hulu because I got Hulu for a month uh, for Little Kenny. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, and 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 when we and we talked about on the last episode that we've been binging the Orville, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so, and, but now I, I realized that there was one episode from season six I didn't watch, uh, called Valentine's day, which oh. is, which is quite great, uh, which I'm almost finished with. Um, and then, uh, then season seven is not on the back of the truck. So I'll watch that probably on Hulu and watch I might just Hulu. keep, I just might keep Hulu. Um, we like Hulu, uh, shit, shit, shit's Creek's on Hulu. And we, we, that was on another, it was on, yeah, it was on Netflix. Yeah. And it was not, um, again, uh, bad people have to be punished. Bad, they're <laughs> they're and, punished enough in that show. Let me tell you, it's all bad people. And those are my, those are my type of people. I love it. love it. Um, uh, all right. Fair, fair enough. What I love about Letterkenny is 
there's no one that's real. They're all screwed up, yeah. but there's no one that's really bad. Like no. we've talked about this before. They get in fights. They knock the crap out of each other. No one's ever bleeding. Um, there are people that do drugs, but they never, they never have any bad consequences. Although apparently the skids are clean and not using meth these days. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's, they're just so, they're so pure. Like, you know, they're just so pure in what they are. I don't, it's just, it's an amazing, anyway, I, I shouldn't talk so much about the show. No, but it's, it's, um, it's just, it's just amazingly, I don't know. It's just amazingly, it's just an amazingly pure and simple and just new thing that I just, I'm, uh, yeah, anyway, I, 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 anyway, I should stop talking. Well, no, I'm, I'm excited for you to watch season seven because I think seven, that's your yeah. seven episode one is your favorite episode. It one is. of your favorite episodes about the Colin show. Yep. I've probably watched it and it, and it's, it's like a, th- well, I mean, it's a whole season arc, but I think it's episode one and episode two. I just love, like I've watched them 10 times each. Mm. Um, and there's so much, there's just so much about it that reminds me of Ontario and, and, and like kind of like a, it's kind of like a podcast and it's It's, it's really good. There's a lot of, there's a lot of good crossover there. Um, uh, yeah, so good, good, good. Um, and I still owe you, uh, my letter. Can you talk? Um, the, oh, th- yes. that was uh, nominally due, uh, in a month and a half ago. And, uh, and I said I was going to get it done yesterday and I didn't. Um, so moving on, uh, what I, that's, you just going to leave it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do it. You're I'm not going to do it. Oh, okay. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. No, no, I'm actually going to do it. Like, I know you're going to do it. That's yeah. just a question of when. No, I, I, so, so if I, now I've got, I still have an hour and 13 minutes left in my, uh, uh, in my time right now. So I'm going to try and do it. Uh, cause I don't have anything. I got nothing. Cause I, I booked another hour for, for podcast things. So I'm going to do it during my podcast time. Cool. Uh, cool. Okay. So we're on for 22nd at 10 30. Uh, I've got this episode. I captured a couple of show notes. Oh, I, I got some. I'm, I'm doing the I'm doing the links and I've got, and I'm in the show titles. I'll I'll drop it in Dropbox. Good. Did you get I will walk again and tragically hipsters? No, because those I like those ones. And then the burger went viral. I didn't. Uh, those I have different ones from those. Okay, good. Well, I'll, I'll go from a list of yours. Um. All right. Cool. I will uh, I will chat with you later. And we still like um. Yeah, we we don't we don't have another risky or not on tap yet, right? We don't I don't do we? Because we got we got like thirty in the can. Oh, we got so many. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We should we should not schedule another one. Yeah, I don't think we do. I think once we that's let's let it roll. Yeah, let's let's post to like post like ten of them and then we'll then we can sc- schedule another one. Yep. Cool. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.